And a voice came down from, the, from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. That's the way it reads in the New Revised Standard Version, and it's pretty much the same in the King James Version and the New International Version and other traditional translations. To me, there are two key words or word phrases in that statement, or at least there are two that particularly interest me. One is the word beloved, and the other is the word phrase well-pleased. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well-pleased. Starting with the second of those two, the word phrase well-pleased in the Greek is exactly what it seems to be. It quite literally means to be well-pleased. No surprises there, at least at first glance. But when I had a look at David Bentley Hart's more recent translation of the New Testament, I was surprised and interested to see that this is how he translates this sentence. You are my son, the beloved, in you I have delighted. Instead of, with you I am well pleased, he translates it as, in you I have delighted. Well pleased, translated as delighted, is he taking liberties with the literal language? Could appear that way, especially since all of the more traditional translations agree that it should be translated as well pleased. But it is interesting to note, if one does a little more digging, that the word phrase well pleased may not be far off from the word delighted. Not just in our contemporary language, but in the scriptural language. So for example, in the Old Testament, in the few verses where the word pleased or well-pleased shows up in English translations, including in Judges, 1 Kings, Psalms, and Isaiah, it is a Hebrew word that actually means to have delight. That is, in the Hebrew scriptures, well-pleased, as it is translated in English, derives from a Hebrew word that means to have delight. So maybe the two things are actually related in the scripture. I noticed that, and then as I looked a little further afield, I noticed that N.T. Wright, in his New Testament translation, takes it a step further, so to speak, and translates the sentence this way. You are my son. You are the one I love. You make me very glad. Well pleased becomes very glad. It's an interesting linkage or progression of connected words. Well pleased, delighted, very glad. How about just one more? The Common English Bible where it says, You are my son whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. You are my son, the beloved, in you I am well pleased. You are my son, the beloved, in you I have delighted. You are my son, you are the one I love. You make me very glad. You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. Well pleased, delighted, very glad, find happiness. Now, of the two parts of the sentence that interested me, beloved and well-pleased, I chose to focus on the well-pleased word phrase first, 
Because those words and whatever stands in for well-pleased contribute something toward giving us a clue perhaps to how the other word that catches my attention, beloved, is not only understood, but what effect it has, what relational dynamic. If you are my beloved, then I am well-pleased with you, I delight in you, I find happiness in you, you make me glad. Those are all interesting words and interesting dynamics to think about, but of those choices, I find the most compelling of those words to be the word delight. You are my son, the beloved. In you, I have delighted. It makes emotional sense to me that I would delight in the one I love, my beloved, that I would experience delight in the presence of my beloved. Yes, sometimes that's all it takes to be in the presence of those I love deeply and dearly. When I am with them, I am delighted, delighting in them, delighted to just be with them. I took a picture last weekend and posted it to my Facebook account. Some of you may have seen it. It's a picture of my three children sitting around the kitchen table playing a board game. In the picture, they are all concentrating on the game. They may not have even noticed the moment when I took the picture. The game they are playing is ideally a game for three people. And when my two sons decided to get it out to play, it was a Christmas gift from one of them to the other, they asked me whether I wanted to play with them. As they set it up, we sat around the table, and then my daughter sat down with us as well. And I listened to the explanation of the rules and the strategy, and it made little sense to me. So I seated my seat at the table to my daughter and offered to just watch for a while so I could understand better what the game was about. So then the three of them were playing, and I was just watching, not participating, just watching watching them talk and make decisions and occasionally tease each other and sometimes complain about a move that someone else had made. Gradually, I started to understand the rules and the strategies, but for the whole time, all I was doing was observing, watching these young people who are no longer children but are still my children doing something fun together. And you know what? It was delightful. I didn't have to be in the game. I didn't have to even be in the conversation particularly. I just delighted in being present. Did it feel like an expression of the scriptural language with you I am well pleased? Yes, but even more so, it felt like an expression of the alternate translation, in you I have delighted. Now on to the other word that I said at the beginning of the sermon is also one of the words that catches my attention, the word beloved. Translated twice in the four versions I have mentioned as the beloved, but also as the one I love and whom I dearly love. The Greek word in the text means dearly beloved. You might think, does the word beloved really need extra emphasis of the word dearly? Isn't it understood that to love is to love dearly? Maybe it is most of the time. But then think of those people you feel called to love, expected to love, but who you do not necessarily like. 
In those cases, we can think of love as a duty, or at least as a responsible expression of our intention and our integrity. That's, of course, different from love as delight. But if we are thinking of love as delight, then dearly beloved or dearly loved makes perfect sense as a more intense expression of the word beloved. Okay, that's a lot of playing with words. But my hope is that it helps us as we move in the direction of gaining an understanding of what is going on in the story of Jesus' baptism. Jesus, rising from the waters of baptism, hears a voice from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. That is what he hears according to a particular translation of the gospel text. But maybe if we push carefully into the deeper emotions of the moment, the words but also the feelings beneath the words, maybe what he hears is something more like this. You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you I have delighted. You are my son, my dearly loved child. You are a delight to me. So when we take the words of scripture and we push them around and turn them over and connect them with all the other words in other verses and think about the connection between what shows up in one version versus how the same but ever so slightly different word shows up in another, we are of course playing with words, testing them, trying them out. But what we are also doing is testing the emotions of the story against our own emotions, our own experiences. And we are checking to see if the heavenly voice in this particular case is only expressing what is factual or whether perhaps it is also expressing what is emotional. There are different ways, after all, to say, I love you. I'm always somewhat distressed when I hear someone say that in their family of origin, they never actually said, I love you. It was just understood. No one ever said it, but we knew it was true. How, I wonder, you just sensed it? You guessed that it was the case? You translated the words, here's your dinner, into I love you, or don't get into trouble, into I love you, or do your best, make me proud, into I love you. What about love as simple but deep as delight in the person? And if you delight in someone, if they are dear to you, wouldn't you say so? Love of the idealized sort, indeed, of the sort that is often lifted up in the scriptural commands, can seem less attached to emotion than to behavior. Love as proper action. And of course, it needs to be connected to proper action. What good is love if it is only ever a feeling, and it comes and goes according to our mood, and we give it only to those we like or admire or hope will love us back? What good is love if it is only warm and fuzzy, if it isn't willing to sacrifice to do the hard thing, to give up its own convenience or comfort? 
What good is love that doesn't somehow work at being caring and responsible and selfless? And yet, love for the beloved is different than just love as duty or right behavior or responsible action. Love for the beloved is animated by something more than just doing the right thing. And remembering or at least suspecting that belovedness has emotional coloring to it invites us to consider this question, what about the role of delight? What about delight? Without delight, love is less animated, less beautiful than it could be. Without delight, love may care about the heart, but does it lift the heart? Think about the beloved, the dearly loved. First, think of yourself as dearly loved. If there isn't someone who delights in you, delights in the sound of your voice, your quirks, your complexities and your perspectives, your smile, your crazy hair in the morning, your sweetness and your stubbornness, then how hard is it to really feel loved? And how do you really know you're loved, that you're dearly loved in an intuitive gut level sense if there is no delight in that loving? We need more than just surface acceptance. We need more than standard validation. We need belovedness to be someone else's delight, to be dearly loved. Such love fills in the cracks. It makes us whole. I wonder these days, and maybe you do too, about people whose only energy seems to be their anger, their rage, their determination to reject and repudiate others before or because they themselves are rejected or repudiated. I wonder about the motives and the emotional foundations of people who make everyone else the enemy and who are certain that they are being perpetually cheated who casually condemn and vilify the opponent, make every opponent an enemy and every enemy the incarnation of evil. I wonder about people who traffic in such things. And one of the things I wonder is this. Do they know anything about belovedness? About being dearly loved? About being someone else's delight? If there is no one who delights in your presence, delights in your very being, how hard it must be to do the same for anyone else. And mind you, idolizing someone is not the same thing as delighting in them. Idolatry lies on a continuum with demonization. In contrast, delight is holy, holy joy and love. Now, although the language of the scripture today is the language of parent and child, such delight, such expression of belovedness doesn't have to be rooted in or even begin with the love of a parent. Not everyone has parents or even one parent who loved them well. 
Not everyone has or had parents who delighted in them, who loved them dearly, but everyone needs someone who fills that role in their life. A grandparent, perhaps, or an aunt or uncle, a mentor, a spouse, a teacher, a family friend. We all need someone to fill that role in our lives because we all need to learn to feel it ourselves that we might offer it to others. I was fortunate enough to gain that from my parents in my earliest years. I did not need surrogate parents for that because I got it from my actual parents. They weren't perfect, not by a long stretch. There were things that felt heavy in terms of their expectations for me, some aspects of their mental health that presented challenges. And at times their relationship with each other was fraught, but always, always, They were delighted when I showed up. I would walk in the door and they would say, it's you, with a smile and open arms. And always in those moments I could feel their delight and I knew I was dearly loved. We all need that. And then also we all have the potential and the power to be that person as well the voice from heaven, so to speak, who says, you are my dearly loved. In you, I have delighted. To be the beloved is transformative for you. To be the one who loves others with unconditional delight is transforming for them. Now to the matter of Jesus' baptism, Jesus' belovedness, and God's delight in him. God as heavenly parent, as holy parent, is an important image to consider. Some will resist the personification of God because all they can imagine is God as some kind of angry old man, the bearded old man on the throne, the one who threatens and judges. But how about God, the gentle grandmother, sitting on the porch swing, inviting you to come sit beside her and help snap the beans. God, the steadying uncle who doesn't let go of the back of the bike until you start to gain your wobbling balance. God, the older sister who holds your hand on the long walk home after dark. If you're going to personify God, you could think of one of those parent figures who not only makes a place on the porch swing or keeps a steadying hand on the back of the bike seat or holds on to you as dusk turns to dark, but who delights in doing such simple yet significant things because she delights in you. He delights in you. In you. Such a one makes a place for you because they already have a place for you. A heart space. A space of welcome and delight. That is how God is. With Jesus, the Son. That 
is how God is with you. My beloved, in you I have delighted. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please join me in some moments of silent prayer and reflection. <clears throat> 